0: The Daily Buzz, a new podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Every
1: weekday, the Daily Buzz will share the day's biggest news from across Utah, explained by the Tribune journalists that reported it.
0: We'll cover
2: everything from bills Utah's lawmakers are debating to how the Beehive State's health care providers are responding
1: to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic.
0: In the time it takes you to drink your morning coffee, the Daily Buzz will get you ready for your day in just five to seven minutes.
1: For more than 150 years, the Salt Lake Tribune has delivered the daily news to Utahns. And now we can't wait to share our mornings with you. Join us. Thanks for joining us today on Mormonland, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined again by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind our listeners about another way to support Mormonland. Just go to patreon.com, where with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcasts and our complete newsletter. Again, that's Patreon, patreon.com forward slash mormonland now for today's show taylor kirby persistently feared he would fall short of god's love no matter how many prayers he offered no matter how often he read or recited scriptures and no matter how pure he kept his thoughts growing up in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints kirby fixated on living every commandment avoiding a hint of anything that could be termed a sin righteousness was not a desire or a goal or a pursuit it was life and it was crippling him He suffered from scrupulosity, an obsessive compulsive disorder that focuses on moral rectitude and brings with it pathological guilt. As a teenager, this religious mania, quote, was all-encompassing, flowing into every aspect of my life and informing the most insignificant decision, Kirby writes in his new book, Scrupulous, My Obsessive Compulsion for God. He joins us today via Zoom to talk about what that was like how he learned to deal with it, and where his faith is today. Taylor, welcome.
0: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: So when did you first notice your scrupulosity?
0: Yeah, well, I noticed that I was very um, obsessed with doing the right thing from a very young age. I talk in my book actually about being around eight or nine years old, and I made a promise to myself that I would get as I put it, baptized in every church that I possibly could just to kind of hedge my bet after I died, right? <laughs> and, and that's where my mind was as a nine-year-old, right? Um, but that's not a real precise answer to your question because I, I didn't realize it was a problem until later in, in my life. Uh, and that's that's one thing that's kind of interesting about scrupulosity is that, um, it is, at least in our church, and as as I've talked with others, I, it seems to be the case in most other churches, um, when, a, when a kid is scrupulous, when they are really um, obsessed or really just trying to do the right thing all the time at a kind of compulsive level, they often receive a lot of praise from the adults in their life. Um, it wasn't until I was a older teenager um, until I was on my mission around that time of my life where I started to realize this was a little bit of a problem and it started to cause me some emotional distress.
1: So let's go to your early life. How, how did it affect your early life? Give, give the listeners an example of, of how it would affect you.
0: Good. Um, So one example I use in the book is this Um, from the time I was a young teenager um, until I was a young adult and I started going to therapy and I started working a lot of this out, if I had a every, every once in a while, I would feel this need, this this um, this this real pressing need to pray for forgiveness then and there. Um, and sometimes there was a stimuli. Sometimes I would have a thought that I thought was bad, or sometimes I would think back to something I had done on the, done earlier that day that I thought was bad. And I would feel this need to kneel down and pray right there. In the book, I talk about a couple of examples, one where I was at a, I was at a grocery store and all of a sudden I felt this need. I had stepped on the wrong tile. As, 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 as silly as this sounds, right? I had stepped on the wrong tile, and for some reason, that it, the tile was not only wrong, but it was offensive to God in some way, and I needed to kneel down and I needed to pray forgiveness, and so I, I knelt down. I found an ex- excuse to kind of look down at a shelf at, at the store, and I knelt down, and I prayed forgiveness there in the store. Um and another instance I have, I talk about in the book, I was at a sleepover and I was maybe, you know, 12, 13 years old. And all of a sudden I just felt like I was full of sin, like there was something wrong and I needed to pray right then and there. And my friends didn't know what was going on. I kept excusing myself to go to another room. Um, but and, and as it, it sounds kind wild to say, but... While this was distressing for me as a young kid, I still sort of thought that it was normal, right, that I was just living the gospel the correct way, that this is just what I did. It wasn't until I was older that I looked back and realized, quote unquote, normal kids don't. Pray five, six, seven times a night before they can go to sleep, or excuse themselves from a slumber party to make themselves right with God. Right? Or kneel down in a uh,
1: store. Right? Yeah.
0: Right. Or <laughs> kneel down in the middle of a store. Um, it. I. I thought that I was just living the gospel the way I was supposed to live the gospel. Um, in large part because no one, I, I talk about this in the book, when you go to Sunday school, especially as a kid, as a teenager, no one tells you to pray less or to, you know, be less introspective or repent a little less. So when I would go to Sunday school and, and um, you know, we would talk about whether or not we were praying daily, about whether or not we had, um, you know, anything left over, we needed to confess to the bishop. I would take those questions very seriously, and um, and in my mind, I was living the gospel um, to its to its fullest natural conclusion.
1: And these prayers um, in the book, um, you would it's you trying to say the same thing, and, and when you write it, it's like not punctuated at all. You know, I mean, it's just like wrote. You know, um, and but you felt better right after you prayed.
0: Instantly. I -hmm. would say, dear Heavenly Father, please forgive me for my sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As like one breath. And I would say that sometimes I would say that phrase four, five, six times in my head and then the guilt would go away. And of course, this is how obsessive compulsive disorder works. Right. Um, Mine just happened to be focused on morality, church and God. Um, other people who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder might feel and um, might feel anxiety about whether their hands are clean. Right. And then they will go and wash their hands, even though their hands are totally clean. Um, and we we um, when I describe my stuff, it sounds it, it it sounds really weird because we aren't as um accustomed to hearing about it but it's the same process in the same way that this person who's obsessed with their cleanliness in the same way that their obsessions their anxiety will grow my anxiety about being sinful would grow until i performed this silly ritual of saying this prayer really quickly
1: yeah as a fellow ocd uh person i have to ask you do you have any other ocd kind of symptoms or is this the, the thing that you've dealt with most or
0: this this was the main thing Um, this, this was the main thing. I know, I, I, I I wish I had some other stuff that would make me sound a little more normal, (laughs) but but no, it was, it was really just wholly focused on being right with, with God.
1: Did your parents know what was happening with you? And at one point your dad was, was the Bishop.
0: Right. So growing up, my dad was the Bishop and, Um, my, my, my parents knew that I was really preoccupied with being worthy and doing the right thing. And they also knew that I would take that to, um, you know, Hey, I, that I would take all of that to the next level. In a way that was not always productive, but I don't think they recognized that it was an obsessive compulsive disorder that required some therapy and required some help. Um, in my book, I talk about how, when my father was bishop, it was actually really convenient for me because I could I could go into his bedroom and say, "Dad, I I did this, you know, really inconsequential thing. Am I still worthy?" And he would say things like, "I know you're worthy." You don't need to ask me if you're worthy, and and that was very helpful for me. I, I I truly think that if I had a a different bishop growing up, maybe someone who didn't know me as well, um, it, it really could have added to my distress. I I think another bishop might have asked a question like, "Why do you feel you're unworthy all the time? You must be doing something if you feel you're unworthy all the time, right?" Um, but my dad was able to recognize that my unworthiness was really something that just existed in my imagination. Um, even if he was unable to recognize that it was an obsessive compulsive disorder that required some intervention.
2: So you've you've already mentioned a couple of incidents. To go at some length to talk about something that happened at Walmart. Do you want to describe that for us?
0: Sure. Um, and this is, I, I think I, I described it a little bit. That, um, this is the, I believe, the opening chapter of the book, this experience at Walmart. And in the book, I describe how this wasn't something that happened once. This is something that would happen all of the time. I was, I was at Walmart and I, like I said, this would happen all the time. And I was walking up and down and I stepped on the corner pieces of the tile and um the corner pieces of the tile i looked at them and and i and they 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 triggered what i thought was an impure thought in my head and i had to kneel down and i had to pray right then right right now right then um and um it's it's funny <laughs> Even as I describe this incident to you, I'm I'm kind of brought back to that. I I can feel that that pressure kind of build up again. Um, But, you know, this is the the point I try to make in the book when I share that story of praying at Walmart is that um, for me, my scrupulosity was something that found its way into every corner of my life. Um, this was something that when I when I would do something as inconsequential as go grocery shopping, I would find myself having a feeling that I was no longer worthy. And I would have to rectify that immediately, even when I had done nothing more than step on the wrong part of the tile, of the linoleum tile at Walmart. Um, and I... I, I, I share that story of praying at Walmart in the book in hopes of reaching someone else who may have had a similar experience. Um, the, the thing that's tricky about scrupulosity is that it can often go unseen and unnoticed by others, especially those called to minister. Um, and I, I can imagine uh, that there are many other people within the church who have had experiences like that and wonder to themselves, am I the only one who has done something as crazy as kneel down in, the, in, in an aisle at Walmart because you had to right then? Um, and my hope in writing this book was to speak to that person who is wondering if anyone else has ever done something like that and let them know that they're not alone. That there's me and there are others who have had that experience and have ultimately overcome that experience.
2: So um, much of what some of what you write in the book has to do with you just mentioned, quote, impure thoughts. So how did all those talks that you heard at church about sexual morality kind of create this notion of slippery slope in your mind so that any touch, anything created this this feeling of guilt?
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the chapter in my book where I discuss this is called The Default Sin, and I, I think it's worth saying that in the church, when we talk about sin, um, normally what we mean is sexual sin. That's the, that's the real sin that, that's at the forefront of our minds for whatever reason. If someone gets up to bear their testimony and they start talking about how the world has gotten... Worse and worse and worse. Really, what they mean is that the world has become more sexually open. Um, they're usually not referencing violence or anything like that. Right? It's it's normally related to sex. Um, so, growing up in the church when when you're in the when you're in the youth program, there's a lot of emphasis on one not having sex, keeping your which. We we use the euphemism keeping ourselves morally clean, as though all of morality is wrapped up in sexuality. Um, And we talk about keeping out our impure thoughts, or in other words, not having any sexual thoughts. There's this analogy that was used a lot when I was growing up, and I imagine it's still used in parts of the church, where um, someone would ask, Um, if I brought a plate of brownies to you and I told you there was just a little bit of dog poop in the brownie, would any of you eat these brownies? And of course the answer would be no, none of us would eat the brownies, even if there was a little bit of dog poop. And then, and then the teacher would go on to say, well, then why do we watch movies where there's just one bad scene? And of course, bad scene is a euphemism, not for a violent scene but for a scene where there's some overt sexuality, right? Now, for a quote-unquote normal kid hey, hearing this lesson, um, I truly think that it's not taken too seriously, right? Um, I think that a normal kid will listen to this and then still go see a PG-13 rated movie and, and live their life. Um, but, but for a kid like me, it was taken very seriously. And the quest became to find a plate of brownies or to live in such a way where I could enjoy a plate of brownies that truly had no dog poop. Um, But that's a hard thing to do when you're a 14, 15, 16 year old person having hormones and normal sexual thoughts. So now I, I, as a kid, I was placed in this really difficult position. On one hand, I am told that I can control my thoughts and that if a bad thought comes into my head, I can get rid of it and that I should endeavor to live in such a way that there is not a speck of dog poop or sexuality (laughs) in my life or in my mind. But on the other hand, I'm still a normal 14, 15, 16 year old boy who's going through puberty. And we know that, that sexual thoughts cannot be fully avoided. And indeed, maybe they should not be fully avoided. Right. Um, so I, I found myself, um, as a kid genuinely trying to rid myself of any or all sexual thoughts or feelings that would, that, that, that would come into my head. I, I, I talk about this in the book and I genuinely wished that there was a way that I could churn off, um, my, my sexuality until I was married. If I could just be rid of any of that attraction to girls until I was married. And then I, you know, then, then I could do whatever it is you do with girls. Um, but I, the, 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 reality, however, was that it's, it's at the end of the day, impossible for a 14, 15, 16 year old boy to rid themselves of all sexual thoughts. Um, and what ended up happening was a, a circle of distress where I, I would continue to have um, impure thoughts and I couldn't stop them from continuing to come into my head. Um, and of course, the more I fixated on them, the more I was, um, um, uh, the more I fixated on them, the more I was aware of their presence and the more I was aware of my inability to live a righteous life by having a righteous mind that in my mind would be completely free of these sexual thoughts. I think I mentioned this in the book i I, I, I hope I do that it wasn't until I was a young or it wasn't until I was a young adult maybe twenty twenty one back from my mission that I recognized That when I have a sexual thought, that that is me having that thought rather than Satan or some external demonic force implanting that thought in my head. And um, one thing that became very powerful for me as someone with scrupulosity trying to find their way in the church is the realization that in the church, we believe that God has a body. And we don't talk about this in Sunday school, but it became very powerful for me to to imagine that God the Father has all these same thoughts that I do. All of these same sexual thoughts are things that God has because he has a body. And ultimately, I was able to see my sexual thoughts Not as something implanted by Satan to bring me away from God, but rather as something that connected me to God the Father. I was able to have these sexual thoughts because I have a body. Um, Something that in Mormon theology we believe I have in common with my Father in Heaven. And, and this, I, I, I know this was a terribly long answer to a, to a really basic question, Becky, um, but it, 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 it brings me to really what is the central thesis of my book, that the way in which I was over, able to overcome my scrupulosity happened first by going to therapy <laughs> and second by shifting my theology – I had to make some changes in how I understood God, the gospel, the church. And once I made those shifts in my mind, I was able to have a good, peaceable existence within a church that I am still very devoted to and love very much. And one of the shifts that I had to make in my mind was understanding that when I had a thought that was sexual, that thought was not outward coming from Satan, but rather was inward coming and was something that actually brought me closer to God rather than further away from him.
1: Let's talk about your mission now, because you go on a mission and a mission, of course, is a time of intense discipline, structure and expectation uh, with a whole bunch of extra rules to follow and feel guilty about if you don't follow them. Um, (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how mission life went for you.
0: Yeah. Um, when, whenever I tell people about my book and what I wrote my book about, um, they ask first, well, what is scrupulosity? And I kind of explain it and I try to explain it without all the sex stuff. Um, but then they say, um, oh, my goodness, I experienced something like that when I was a missionary. That is normally the one, if someone has never experienced it before, that's the one thing they can kind of latch onto to understand what it's like to have scrupulosity. Um, my mission was a wonderful and also very complex period of my life. Um, when you're on a mission, as, as, as you alluded to, there are extra rules that you follow. And the expectation is that you are following these, these rules, as they say, with 100% obedience. That you are not making a deviation from those rules. And, and, as they tell you in the MTC and in the mission field, if you deviate from those rules, you will lose your connection to the Holy Spirit and, by consequence, your ability to be an effective missionary which is awful, right? So now here I am a person with scrupulosity. I want to be the best missionary I can be. I also want to follow all of these rules. And if, if, if your listeners have not served a mission, there are a lot of rules. There's a, there's a whole little book of rules. And then normally you go to your mission And there are supplemental rules to add on to those rules. And in my mission, and this is very common, you would sit around first thing in the morning and you would open the rule book. And you would read a couple pages out of the rule book and have a conversation with your companion about how you can be better at following the rules. Can you imagine what this does to someone who at 15 is praying in Walmart because they stepped on the wrong tile?
1: (laughs) So you had a rule in your mission to read the rules. Uh, we did. Daily okay yes,
0: we did we we would read we we had to read two pages of the rules every day um either out of the uh, missionary handbook or out of this big blue binder that came um, came came with my mission and I take two pages the 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 implication here is that there are a lot of pages of rules right uh, there's there's a lot which means that there's a lot of opportunities to not live up to those rules 100%. So now um now that's hard enough to do when you have a companion that is dedicated to following the rules. When I started my mission um I um, I I was called to the Washington DC North Chinese speaking mission which is I see the look in Peggy's face. It's real. And it, and it was a very strange experience. <laughs> um, I was, I, there are, um, we were the only Chinese speaking missionaries in the Washington DC area, which meant that transfers weren't really a thing. Right. Um, and when, when we were with a companion, we were with that companion until that companion was no more. Okay. So I get I got placed in in my mission and I was with these two companions. We we were in a group of 3 and both of them were just done with missionary life. <laughs> they were just, they, they they were so done, you know. And um, then I I came in and I said, "No guys, like we're going to be the best missionary we can be. We're going to follow all the rules and we're going to do all the stuff. And they said, you know, listen, I don't know who you think you are or what you think it is we're doing here, but we're, you know, we don't want to do any of this. We've, I've, we both got a couple of months left and we're, we're just biding our time. till to we can get out of here. So, um, I, I was I, I I had these these companions who would not get up on time in the morning, which is one of the rules. You had to be up at six thirty. Who wouldn't do their uh, companion scripture study with me, which was one of the rules. You had to do that at nine o'clock, um, and who at night would sneak down to the um, the uh, business center of our apartment complex and uh, watch television on on the on the, on the, on the TV. This was the most distressing situation (laughs) I could have possibly been in because now I am in a position where no matter what I do, my companions are not going to follow the rules. And one of the rules is that I have to be in sight and sound of these people. One story I, I I forget if this made it into the final cut of the book, but we we were at a um, we were at somebody's house. It was someone who wasn't a member of the church, and she goes, "You know, I saw this movie the other day, and I think you guys would like it." And she puts on a movie. Now, watching movies is against the rules as a missionary, and I expected my companions to you know get up, say, "Actually, we we need to go do something else and leave." but they sat on the couch and watched the movie. So now I was faced with a dilemma. Either I leave the room, in which case I am breaking a rule by not being in sight and sound of these companions, or I sit on the couch, in which, in which case I would be breaking a rule by watching a movie. In either scenario, I am feeling that I am now unworthy. Unworthy of the Holy Spirit, which will lead me to people that need Jesus Christ. And it was just incredibly, incredibly distressing. Um, Other thing about the mission, and you guys can edit out the parts you want. (laughs) But um, the thing about being a missionary is that there is no downtime. If you don't just stand around somewhere for 15 minutes, you fill that 15 minutes with activities. And the mission is one of the, the mission is a a place where you are consistently told to do more and more and more and to be creative in thinking how you can use that time more effectively to accomplish more stuff. And, the thing that was so difficult about having scrupulosity on a mission is there is no goal post on a mission. There's no place where you've done enough, right? No matter how much you do, there is still the expectation coming from in and outside that you could be doing more and more and more and more. And, um, because of this, my, my, my mission was the place where I really started to hit a breaking point. Um, I, I, uh, I started having thoughts of suicide on my mission, uh, just because the anxiety became too much. And the mission is where I first started to see a therapist. Um, interestingly though, and I, I, again, I apologize for being long winded, um, but I when I, I it was on my mission when I really started to realize I'm having a problem, that there is some distress happening inside of me that I need to be resolved. I, I I had a companion. Um, this was a companion that came later in my mission, who said, you know, listen, Elder Kirby, I really think you should see the mission therapist. You're pacing up and down at the kitchen at night. Um you're, you're upset. You're worried all of the time. We have a, there is a therapist that missionaries can see that's free. Why don't you ask the mission president? So I, um, I, I, I went to my mission president and I said, mission president, I'm, I'm feeling this and I'm feeling this. And I really think I should see a therapist. And he said, no, <laughs> he, um, he, 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 he said no. Um, because, in his judgment, I was fine. And um, anyway, one one thing I say in the book is that if, if, if you are in a position of ministry, it's important to know your limitations. Um, and scrupulosity is one of those things that if you're a bishop or a mission president, an elders president, you're simply not qualified to treat this is something for a licensed counselor who needs to come in and do that work. Um, my mission president was was a good man, and I, I I think he believed he was doing the right thing. But it's important for those of us in ministry to recognize our limitations.
2: So, uh, as you learn to manage your scrupulosity, how did your understanding of sin, obedience, and God change?
0: Yeah. So. Short answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 15 seconds go the, the, the uh, 15 second answer is this I, reckon, I came to believe that Jesus Christ is not actually that interested in how good I can make myself we believe that Jesus Christ paid for our sins And we believe that no matter how good we are, we can't be perfect enough for Jesus Christ to still not have to pay for our sins. Okay. Um, I believed growing up that the best way to worship God, the best way to be a member of the church, was to make myself as good as I could possibly make myself. And in the book, the way I term it is that I made myself, my own righteousness and purity into an idol God. I was really worshiping how good I was rather than worshiping Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, what does it mean then? to worship God, to worship Jesus Christ, if it's not about making myself as good and unspotted from the world as I possibly can be. I believe that we can turn to the words of the savior where he said, in so much as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. In other words, my theology now is about reaching outward in caring and loving other people. And I believe that at the end of the day, that's what Jesus Christ cares about. And interestingly, as I have taken my theology and tried to make it outward facing rather than inward facing, my scrupulosity has also decreased. Which may sound weird because it's possible, right? One can conceive that someone with scrupulosity could be obsessed with doing as much good in the world as they possibly can, right? But if they are, they've then made it about themselves. And so what has allowed me to move past scrupulosity is telling myself in those moments when I wonder if I'm worthy enough or if I'm doing enough in those moments, I tell myself, no, 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 Taylor, you're making it about you right now. If you're concerned about how good you are, you're worshiping yourself rather than worshiping Jesus Christ. In the restored gospel, we understand um, that we have a commission to gather, to facilitate Zion, to reach outward in love and care for other people. And I have found that as I have made a commitment to reach outward, rather than focusing on myself, I've been able to live a life within the church um, without my scrupulosity, or at least with a lesser form of my scrupulosity, a manageable form of my scrupulosity.
1: So, Taylor, uh, y- you close the book with some suggestions for church leaders, um, and you referred to one of them, um, which was... Um, uh, recognize that the person that you're seeing might need a mental health professional, of course, a therapist to help. Mm-hmm. Tell listeners, some of the other uh, at the end of your book where you talk about suggestions for church leaders of what they could do that might help people who may be dealing with this and they may not know that.
0: As a general rule, I think it's important for church leaders to understand that the people, particularly the young men and young women in their congregation who seem like they have everything together who are working really hard, um, those people should be of concern to them as well. I think that there is a tendency to only be concerned or to prioritize the, the kids who are a little rebellious. Um, the thought being that if the kid is rebellious now, they're, they're, they're we're going to lose them later down the line. Um, I don't have any data on this, but just observing people in my life, that doesn't seem to quite be the case, number one. Um, But number two, if if we aren't careful about how we minister to these people, these kids especially, that are really trying to be the best they can, we can lose them too. Um, If I had not changed if i had not shifted my theology i would have left the church because it was just too much for me to handle okay to that end um i talk at the end of my book about how we need to be careful how we praise our youth in the church we want to make sure that we are not making righteousness their core identity um To that end, I think it's better. I would recommend praising some action that they perform rather than praising who they are. In other words, it actually can be rather damaging to say, Brandon, I can always count on you. Brandon, you're steps ahead of the other kids. Brandon, I know you'll always do the right thing. Instead, it would be better to praise some good thing that Brandon did because we don't want... This kid to internalize being righteous as his core identity. Um, to that end, it's important for leaders to be on the lookout for scrupulosity, to look for ways in which an obsession with righteousness is becoming unhealthy for kids. I think part of the one thing that's hard about scrupulosity is that from the perspective of a leader, especially a youth leader, it all, everything the kids doing appears to me admirable. Appears to be good. That happened right? to
1: you, right? Of course.
0: Exactly. exactly. I, I, I talk in the it, book about it reinforced all of this. it. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I talk about how I received all of this wonderful, wonderful praise. There was this one time I went up and I bore my testimony, and my youth leader pulled me aside later, and he he said to me. That when I was bearing my testimony, his wife turned to him and said, that boy has reinforced my testimony that a 14-year-old can be a prophet.
2: Wow. Mm -hmm. Which is,
0: wow, which is a lovely thing to hear. But my God, how do you live up to that? (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. When I heard that, um, which was a very kind, well-meant thing for this person to say, that bore itself into me and, um, and reinforced my commitment to continue to be scrupulous. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, after hearing something like that, I had to bow down at Walmart. Right. I had to continue doing these behaviors. So in, in other words, when, when, when those unhealthy, when that unhealthy cycle of, anxiety and ritual familiar to all all OCD people. When when that cycle is already happening with scrupulosity and a kid receives that level of praise, what it does is encourages that cycle to continue. Now there was no way for my youth leader to know what was happening at Walmart with me. No way for the white, you know, it's, 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 it's nobody's fault, but we do need to be careful about the way we praise and encourage good behavior in the church. And we need to be okay with the fact that our kids, especially our youth and our teenagers, are going to do silly, rebellious things. And when they do silly, rebellious things, those things are not disqualifying them from further presence in the kingdom of God. But I think that we truly... I. I, I truly believe there is a part of every good Mormon person that thinks that in the back of their head. That you know, John went and toilet papered a bunch of houses. Where, where's he going to be? Or more accurately, John went and had a drink. John, John, uh, John, John got high uh, uh, th- 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 this weekend or whatever. We need to understand. That those sort of things are not going to ruin our kids forever. What what will ruin our kids in the church, and forgive me if this is tangential, what what will push our kids out of the church is reinforcing to them that they must be perfect in order to be Latter-day Saints. No one is able to live with that level of pressure and scrutiny. And no one is able to be perfect. I've tried really, really hard to be, and I didn't do it. So um, two leaders, two parents, I would say, let's be careful how we praise. Let's also be mindful of those kids that seem like they're doing everything right. And let's be okay with our kids making some stupid mistakes. Kids... Protestant, Catholic, and Mormon will all make stupid mistakes. However, we Mormons, we Mormons, more than our more than our other na- more than our neighbors, are more likely to believe that a kid's stupid mistakes are going to push them out of this community. I fear our <laughs> our own scrupulosity, if you will, our our own obsession with our kids' righteousness. Will push them out of our community more than their rebellion will.
1: Hmm. Well, it's a fascinating book, and the name of it is Scrupulous My Obsessive Compulsion for God. Taylor Kirby, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
1: And thanks to Peggy Fletcher-Stack.
2: Always a pleasure.
1: And to our producer, Chris Samuels. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormonland newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormonland.